0: Greetings once again friends and welcome to another podcast from the heart of Spurgeon with me Jeremy Walker your host as we work our way through some of these wonderful sermons preached by a man gifted by Christ for the exaltation of his name. If you want to follow us on Twitter you can find us at Reading Spurgeon as we work our way day by day through a sermon preached by Spurgeon and if you're not able to uh, to track us there, but you'd like to keep track of the weekly featured sermons where we take a representative sample and we study them through this podcast, you can sign up at mediagratii.org podcasts, find From the Heart of Spurgeon, among some of the other material that's available there, Word in Season devotions that I've done through the year, John Snyder's Behold Your God podcast, but if you find from the heart of Spurgeon, you can get a weekly newsletter that contains the weekly reading scheme, but also a PDF of this featured sermon, so that if you can't or don't want to read one a day, but you'd like to read one a week, that would be the way to do it. So today we're in Sermon 717, entitled Pray for Jesus. It was preached on the 21st of October, 1866, at the Tabernacle in London, and it's drawn from Psalm 72 and verse 15. Prayer also shall be made for him continually. What's interesting on this occasion is that Spurgeon doesn't only tell us what he's preaching, but a specific reason why he's preaching it. Now, he does that from time to time. What it seems like on this occasion is that he's used the phrase in other sermons or addresses, «praying for King Jesus». And it seems that there are some people who are uh, offended by this or troubled by this, confused by this. Why should you use a phrase like that? And he's saying, well, that's a perfectly scriptural phrase. And actually, it's, it's a, an understanding in prayer that will enrich and enliven our prayers. I think, he says, we shall all see that the same Spirit which made holy women minister to Christ out of their substance which made the daughters of Salem weep for him as he was led to the crucifixion, must have prompted all his sincere followers to say amen to this prayer, Father, glorify thy son, and what was this but praying for him? Now, he says, you might say, well, that was back then, what about now? The things that you've just mentioned, the the prayers that were offered for him during his humiliation are no longer relevant. No he says we still pray for him not personally but relatively for his cause for his kingdom for his gospel for his people for his blood-bought ones who as yet are in the ruins of the fall for his second coming and glorious reign and it's in that sense then that Spurgeon is going to take and apply his text prayer also shall be made for him continually this is why we go on praying for Jesus Christ. And in the the course of this sermon, he's got five main headings, and he kind of drifts back and forth between musing on the text and uh, expounding the text and applying the text. uh, These uh, five main headings, might have said four there, but uh, uh, he works his way through what it means for us to pray for the Lord Jesus in the light of this exhortation. And I hope that you'll find as you contemplate this with me, that it does indeed uh, enliven and encourage us in praying in a way that is happy and healthy. So then, if it's right to pray for Jesus Christ, this thought will elevate the tone of our prayers. So he says, you need to remember that some prayers which are terribly narrow, selfish and contracted are characteristic of the church of Jesus Christ. In these, the suppliant, the the one who's asking, that is, mentions nothing but his own experience or, at the widest, the trials of his household. He goes through his own private interests and rehearses the sorrows of his own little sphere. He repeats them. He never seems to get beyond them. Now, he says, if he could grasp this selfish prayer... If he could grasp the still higher thought that in coming to the mercy seat we may come for Christ as well as by Christ and may have a prayer to pray even for him who is the Apostle and High Priest of our profession, he would surely look upon prayer as being altogether a different thing from what he had conceived it to be. He would get out of that narrow rut and begin to pray something more worthy of a child of God. So there's this danger then of selfishness in connection with our prayers. And he said we could be delivered from those prayers that have what he calls a secret centre in ourselves if we pray for Jesus Christ. So he says we, we pray for the conversion of sinners, but I've been afraid sometimes lest I have been praying for sinners to be converted under my own ministry with the view of being thought a useful preacher. And it's not impossible that some of you in your classes, probably has in mind Sunday school and Bible classes, seeking to do good may have desired usefulness with the view of wearing it as a jewel to ornament yourselves. Or if you sought not honour for self exactly, yet it may have been for some honoured person whom your affection has made to be part of yourselves. So this is a, a danger perhaps for preachers. Now, it's not wrong for us to pray that perhaps our ministry would be vindicated by conversions, but it is easy for us to to basically want our reputations to be burnished by our gospel successes rather than for God in Christ to be glorified by our labours. So I must take care that I supplicate for souls to be saved, says Spurgeon, and the kingdom of Christ to be advanced with no sinister aim mingling with the prayer. And if I pray it for him, if I pray that sinners may be converted for his glory, to show forth the power of his gospel, to let men see that the pleasure of the Lord is prospering in his hands, then I shall ask for the mercies which I need with a better grace, and be less likely to have not because I have asked amiss. Now he goes on to say that praying for Jesus Christ would also lift us beyond the narrow bounds of sectarianism. It's right, he says, for a man to love that body of Christians with which he's most intimately connected and to love them best because he believes that they are most faithful to the truth. But he should not desire their increase merely for the prevalence of a party name. He must desire it for the increase of the one great universal church of Christ and for the extension of truth because it is truth, not because it happens to be a truth which he has received. So there's a a danger almost that we could pray, I guess, like a supporter of a certain football club. And and all we're interested in is the success of our team and them climbing up the table. We want to see uh, our guys, our tribe, somehow honoured above others. And Spurgeon says when you pray for Jesus Christ, it prevents you from that party spirit, that sectarian attitude. Just how all of us ought to feel is that the Church of Christ should be honoured for Christ's sake, that all the churches would multiply and increase where truth is preached, and we wish to see that truth prevail. So the point is not that we don't care about truth. The point is where truth is preached, we are happy for Christ to be honoured, even if it's not our gang who get honoured. Then again he says, I've noticed that when we can ask for any deliverance as for Christ, we may pray very earnestly against an evil without any bitterness mingling with the prayer. That's that's interesting and, and that's helpful. How often our, our prayers can be resentful or bitter. We pray against error then for Christ, because error wounds Christ. It robs Christ of his glory. So Spurgeon's using the example here of the uh, the, the Puseyism, we've, we've talked about that before, the, uh, the Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholicizing of the Anglican Church in his day, the, the Popery that was creeping back into the national church uh, as it was and as it still is. And he says that puts sacramental efficacy in the place of Christ's atonement. That lifts, lifts a piece of bread into the place of the Saviour. That puts a few drops of water into the place of the Holy Ghost. That puts a mere fallible man like ourselves as the vicar of Christ on earth. Now, he's talking about then the tendency to that the ritualizing of religion, the, uh, the bringing in of these... Sacraments as uh, direct means of grace, so that merely participating in them, having a priest who sprinkles or a priest who distributes bread and wine, that makes that to be a saving ordinance. Spurgeon says, Absolutely not. But we need to pray against that because it's against Christ. And then we shall love the persons, although we hate their errors. We shall love their souls, though we loathe and detest their dogmas dogmas and so the breath of our prayers will be sweetened because we turn our faces towards christ when we pray so that's really helpful when we see confusion error even heresy to pray against it for christ's sake keeps us from a sinful anger a sinful bitterness against those who are perpetuating it it will help us to pray that the lord christ would be glorified in those things then again prayer is made sweet when we pray for him. He says, if you've not prayed for Christ, much of your own prayer will have been displeasing for God. For Christ tells us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, but first gave the petition, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this this is to encourage those who, who might say, well, what can I do but pray? If you're, if you're not praying for Jesus Christ and his glory, there'll be a flatness and a staleness. So, says Spurgeon, do not let your prayers be all about your own sins, your own wants, your own imperfections, your own trials, but, and listen to this language, let them climb the starry ladder and get up to Christ himself. And then, as you draw nigh to the blood be mercy seat, offer this prayer continually – Lord, extend the kingdom of your dear son. Such a petition, fervently presented, will tend to elevate the spirit and tenor of our prayers. So then there's this uh, elevating effect. That's the, the first thing. The tone of our prayers is lifted when they are for Christ, so that even when we're praying about things that have to do with us and our own group or association or denomination or circle of churches, when we're praying against error, it's all sweetened, it's all fine-tuned, it's all lifted by the fact that it's centred on the glory and honour of Christ. Then he moves on and these five points he has, they're all quite brief. Uh, the, The themes of prayer, the many themes that are suggested by praying for Christ. He says, I must plead for Christ's cause on earth according to its present condition and circumstances. Consequently, I shall need to keep my eyes open to see in what plight the kingdom of Christ is. As a general looks along the whole line of battle and sends reinforcements where the line appears to be most weak, so will the true man who prays for Christ look along the line of the church's work and pray most for that which is in the worst state. Offering up his prayers for Christ, according as Christ's cause seems to need those prayers. So it prompts this large awareness of what's going on in the kingdom uh, nearer to us and further afield, and then prompts us to pray fittingly. How then might that help us? Well, we should pray that Christ may always have fitting witnesses for the truth on earth that's suitable men and women for the work of the kingdom. There's a general complaint, he says, throughout all denominations of a dearth of earnest first-class men who shall devote themselves to the ministry. And this dearth must be and must increase until the church takes it up and prays that he who ascended up on high and received gifts for men would be pleased to give her again her apostles and ministers, her teachers and her evangelists, each according to his proper station. So when you look around, are you pleading with God that he would raise up men of God to be preachers and teachers of the truth, that he would give these uh, pastors, these planters, these evangelists, these witnesses, open-air preachers, elders for the churches, uh, that that we're we're concerned that the, the preachers of the cross of Christ would be lifted up and thrust out into the field? Then he says alongside of that, bear in mind he's he's thinking particularly here of the public preaching of the word, although we could extend it more widely. We'd, We'd love workers in the churches, whether or not they're the preachers and the teachers. But he goes on, pray for those that are already in the field. He says... We're rich when you enrich us with your supplications, strong when you strengthen us with your prayers. A few loving tears shed for us in private will be of more value to us than anything else you can possibly bestow upon us. Some of my brothers, he says, are fainting from want of success, hundreds of them growing cold because of the coldness of the church members who surround them, some of them struggling with poverty, all of us, alas, too weak for the work we've engaged in. Pray for us. You're praying for Christ, and if we be his servants, if he has truly sent us, you pray for the master's business when you pray that the servants may do that business well. So let me let me speak on behalf of, of pastors and preachers. We need your prayers, our circumstances, our challenges, the demands, the opportunities that lie before us. We cannot do this without the help of the Holy Spirit. We cannot honour Christ in the way in which we're sent. And we cannot then really serve you as church members if you're not a a pastor and a preacher with that particular responsibility. We cannot serve the body as a whole unless Christ is glorified in our ministry. So when you pray for Christ, pray for the servants of Christ that we might honour him. We are easily discouraged, we are very frail, we are quickly beaten down, we are sinful and feeble men and we need your prayers. And then pray that God would open doors of utterance to us among the people. Ask that God would give us a a wide sphere of opportunity, that he would open the door, though there be many adversaries, that there'd be a desire for people to hear and that that would be continued and increased. You see, it's not just that we need to be helped in speaking. The Holy Spirit needs to open the ears of those who are hearing. For yourself, pray, and pray for for many more that God would give us, not only a desire to go, but an opportunity when we get there. And then pray for the conversion of many souls. Oh, that we loved souls as Christ loves them. Then should we hunger and thirst after their salvation. Oh, for the tender heart of the weeping Saviour, that no soul might go down to hell unsprinkled with our tears. Then pray for those who are saved or who make profession of salvation, that they may be kept from falling into sin. Pray for the holiness of the church of Jesus Christ, that we might not dishonour him with our testimonies. Pray for the church of God, that it may be knit together in one. Unity, not just uniformity. That's neither desirable nor probable. But do pray that all Christians may be one as the Father is one with the Son, that is, one in spirit, so that we, dividing as we always shall do as to our thoughts upon many points, may nonetheless be one in the hope that animates us, in the spirit that actuates us, one in the life of God that pulsates in our souls. And he says, I'm not done. When you've prayed thus for Christ, and I'm sure it is all for Christ if you so pray, then ask that the kingdoms of this world may become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ for the all-conquering progress of the gospel of King Jesus do not stint your thoughts, that is don't uh, draw them down or diminish them, nor limit your desires, be ambitious for Christ, nothing but universal monarchy ought to content you, as it will not content the master. So Spurgeon's got then this this great sweep he's thinking of the preaching of the word and therefore those who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ their usefulness their fruitfulness their opportunity then the church to which they preach then the spread of the gospel beyond the congregation then the progress of the gospel through all the earth and he's saying have you prayed like this if you're praying for Christ how else can you pray have you been up to the mark in this, he asks, as he applies this point, or hasn't there been a good deal of negligence upon many of these issues? He confesses it himself. We have to confess it for ourselves that we have not prayed for Christ in the way in which we should. He rushes on, and so must we. Thirdly, he says, it appears to me that if we were to look upon our prayers as being in a great measure prayers for Christ, this would give us a peculiar or distinctive earnestness he says first of all under this heading i must pray for christ or i'm not consistent with my profession i profess to be his servant am i not going to ask success for my master i avow myself his disciple and am i not anxious then that the truths which i receive from my teacher should win their way i call myself his friend and he calls me so a friend and not show myself friendly enough to put up a word of prayer for him christ says i'm his brother A brother who does not pray for his brother is most unbrotherly. He's deigned, he's stooped down to call the collective body of his people his spouse. Can you imagine a bride not praying for her husband? That's most unwifely. If then we are what we say we are, we should be praying for Jesus. And it should put this edge upon our prayers and not just enrich the tone and elevate the tone of our prayers. Now, gratitude dictates me to pray also. When I'm praying for his church, I'm apt to think of her faults, perhaps of her unkindness to me, and my prayer lacks force. But when I pray for Christ, so good, so tender, so self-denying, laying down his life for his sheep, bleeding out that life for me, for me a sinner and once his enemy, how can I but pray for him? So Spurgeon's saying if you pray for the church, you might just express your disappointments, your frustrations, your distresses. But when you pray for Christ, you've you've got someone for whom you can pray wholeheartedly without any hindrance, no bitterness, no drawing back. Then consistency and gratitude, so love also. We never pray more fervently, I suppose, says the preacher, than for those whom we love best. He who does not love sinners cannot pray aright for them. When we love sinners, then the prayer is fervent. When we love Jesus, the prayer is earnest. And then remember our union with him. All that concerns him concerns us. Not because we're partners merely, but very part and parcel of himself. One Christ and his church, one with him. So to pray for Christ is truly to pray that in his blessing we ourselves would be blessed. He rushes on. We go with him, very briefly, the fourth place. If I can look at my prayers in the light which has been mentioned, it will give me a special encouragement in offering them at the mercy seat. Why? Because of the one for whom we pray, the one in whom God is well pleased. So you take account of the dignity of his person and the excellence of his character. He deserves to be beloved. It's easy work then to plead for him. What about the merits of Christ? That encourages us to pray. He may be crowned, we pray, who was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Will God deny that? Is not the crown well earned? Can the reward be withheld? Then you've got the promises of God. That which the Spirit prompts us to ask for Jesus is the very thing which God decrees to give him. Brothers, when you're praying for the kingdom of Christ, let your eyes behold the dawning of the blessed day which draws near when the crucified shall receive his coronation in the place where men rejected him. Rejoice, he says, rejoice. The cause for which you plead is one which heaven ordains to bless. Everlasting decrees stand like lions to guard the throne of Christ." So you think about the excellence and the dignity of Christ, the merits, the promises of God connected with him. When you're praying for Jesus, that should encourage you. And then in closing, the last thought which occurred to me was this. When we put our prayer in such a light that we pray for Christ, it demands consistent action. Spurgeon saying, basically, don't make your prayers a gilded hypocrisy. You can't pray for Christ and then go and sin against the very kingdom you hope to spread. That would be dastardly. If I really pray for Christ, I must take care to be on my watch, to know what to pray for, so as to make my prayer a sensible prayer, a prayer of the understanding. He says some members of the church don't know what the church wants at the moment. They can't plead for Sabbath schools, for they never take the trouble to examine them. Could some of you pray for our own school as it should be prayed for? You can pray a sort of general hit-or-miss prayer, but you don't know if the Sunday school is well attended, you don't know if the teachers are godly young men and women and knit together in love, or whether they're all divided and split into factions. We ought to know, as church members, it seems to me, something about all the agencies, but all about some one agency in which we take particular concern – and we should get to be acquainted with the condition of the church of which we're members, and also, as far as our means will allow us, to be acquainted with the condition of the church of God at large. So think of your own congregation. How are the elders doing? What about the ministry of the deacons? Are there widows who need particular care? Are there men and women who particularly care for the widows and others who are needy? Is there a Sunday school where the children are being instructed? What's the state of those children? What's the, uh, the the attitude of the, the teachers of those classes? Are there people who go out and preach the gospel in the open air? Is there a team who knocks on the doors and tells people about King Jesus? Are there uh, opportunities to, to broadcast the truth? Maybe it's podcasts or uh, sermon uh, distribution online. Uh, maybe there's Uh, investment in missionaries or or pastors and preachers in in other places all of these things do you know do you know what's going on in your church what about your fellow members do you understand at least something of what they're going through are you engaged in pleading with god for his blessing upon them is there some particular work to which you're giving yourself in prayer it's 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 vital that we have this intelligent interest in the kingdom of god where we are and then further afield i just take as an example we we have a a prayer rota and that might sound a little bit dry and dull but it basically means that sunday by sunday we pray our way through a variety of congregations around our own nation and across the globe with which we've got some meaningful engagement I can write to a, a man in that congregation, usually one of the elders, one of the pastors, and I say, what can we pray for this week? And it gives us this connection then with the church of God at large. Do we do that in praying through the various uh, classes and categories of people in the congregation? How are we praying corporately and individually? And then, says Spurgeon, if we did this, we'd not be afraid that we would attend to the last thing well, which is to take care that we add to our prayers our continual personal service. It says, The old fable of the priest who would not give the man a farthing but would give him his prayers is very like many professors. They pray for the kingdom, but what are they actually doing? See, Spurgeon is saying if if you're going to pray, then you're going to follow up your prayers with labour. You're going to follow up your prayers with perhaps giving your energy, giving your time, giving your money, giving your service. Because if you're really praying, you won't be able to not do something to back up those prayers. Your your prayers will draw not just your heart toward God, but your hands toward God. They'll activate and and enliven your, your feet, your your eyes, your ears, you'll be looking and seeing and serving in ways that you might not have done because your heart is engaged in prayers for Jesus. And so Spurgeon finishes with this closing application by him who loved you if indeed he loved you by him who died for you if indeed you have a share in his passion by him who lives for you if indeed you've been quickened together with him by him who pleads for you this day before the eternal throne if indeed your names are on his breastplate so he's, he's pleading now specifically with God's people, with those who are trusting in Jesus, with those who are following him. He says, I charge you, live to Jesus, live now to him. Live while you live, live with all the possible energy of life. Let the love of Christ be an all-consuming passion with you. Find out some way in which to increase his kingdom. Ah, my hearers, he says, I bless God for you, because the most of you are serving him. I rejoice in you. You are the jewels of my crown of rejoicing, because you do serve the Master. Many of you live even apostolical lives in your eagerness to spread abroad abroad the truth. But alas, some of you I might speak of even weeping, because you are indifferent and almost dead to the blessed power of love within the soul. May God revive us all. May the Holy Ghost constrain us to more consecrated living. I need to ask, would Spurgeon be able to pray about me in the first case or in the second? Rejoicing because of an apostolical spirit that animates me or weeping because of my indifference to the work? What about you? What about your pastor? How would your pastor be able to pray for you? Rejoicing because of your earnest prayers and the labour that follows, or weeping because you don't seem to care either to pray or to serve. My friends, this is a stirring sermon. It, it, it's not just about prayer, but it is about prayer. It lifts us up beyond the narrow and the shallow, beyond the crass and the constrained, beyond the earthy and the heavy. It lifts us up, it, it carries us up that starry ladder to consider Christ and to pray for Jesus and so to, to live and to think and to feel and to serve with an eye to his glory. I trust that it will help us to do that, that our prayers individually and congregationally may be lifted above their, their selfish sphere, their short-sightedness, and that there would be a a largesse in our praying. There would be a a long-distance heavenly view, and that that would transform, first of all, our praying, and then, because our praying, every other part of our living. Well, may God bless you, so to pray and so to serve, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. May God bless you, may he keep you, and... uh, May you know some of this sweetness in your praying.